though he was disappointed with them, he just went back and said, okay, I'm going to treat you like babes and not as mature people. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So relationships are tricky things because we've all got different kinds of expectations. And actually, the idea of life is to say, well, maybe maybe my expectations are not real and I need to re-navigate that. Or maybe they are and maybe you need to adjust. And really, that's the whole issue about how you work through relationships. But every single one of us, um, we, we need to understand how our relationships form. What's the building blocks of relationships? So I've got, I've got some things up. If you could put the first one up there. Boom. There we go. I want to talk about honor to begin with. And what, I, what I've shown you there is it's exactly the same thing, a before and after. A before and after. What's the difference between the before and after? One is polished. One is polished. That is a great way of thinking about honor. Because there is no difference between the value of the first picture or the second picture. Its value did not change. But its value was displayed in the second picture better than in the first. And if we talk about relationships, honor is probably the most neglected thing in any relationship. And I would say particularly in Europe, part of the reason is we, we don't like people who are big-headed. And so we make sure they never get that way. And, and how do we do that? Well, we, we have this way of pulling people down, don't we? Oh, I just, you know, let's take his feet out from under him. And uh, comedians are especially good at doing this. Uh, and there's a sense in which that's not a bad thing, but you can take it too far. And sometimes you can get to the point where instead of honoring people, we actually dishonor people. And so honor is probably the most neglected aspect or building block in almost every relationship that we find. And if you think of it like this, that, that honor is actually polishing the silver. So in other words, when I honor you, I'm not increasing your value as a person because you already have value before God. You're made in his image. But when I, when I honor you, what I'm doing is I'm displaying your true value in its best light. So, so when I say something complimentary, like, like I was trying to honor Avalia by just thanking, you know, she's done a little this, and hey, who, who did that? Enya did, and Avalia did, and a few others did. That's quite an achievement. What are we doing? We're honoring the gift that's on her life. And so when we honor the gift that's on somebody's life, who put that gift in them? God did. So it's a way of honoring God. And so... There's nothing wrong with giving a person a compliment. Why is it we say thank you? What are we doing when we say thank you? We're doing something really, really simple. We're showing appreciation to somebody who served us in some way. When you show appreciation, what are you doing? You're giving honor. And have you noticed that Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Did you get that? His, his hometown, his relatives, and his household. Why is that? Because when you're at home, everyone reminds you what you were like when you were seven and what you did when you were 10 
And who do you think you are? And you're my brother. You're not my dad. Why are you telling me what to do? Have you noticed that in a family, when you try and say truth or you try and say something that perhaps is a little bit challenging, everyone's right there ready to pull you down. It's very, very hard, and Jesus acknowledged that. It's like his brothers in John's gospel thought he'd gone crazy. And uh, he, he said to them, your time is already, my time has not yet come. So Jesus had the hardest time amongst his own family. Why? Because they grew up with him. Here's the thing. There's a phrase that I think is true. I think it was Shakespeare who first came up with it, but it's familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, the more familiar you become with something, the less honor you give it. The more easy it is to despise it and not show appreciation for it. And so when it comes to relationships, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, have I been polishing the silver? Because here's what happens. Over time, silver tarnishes. It oxidizes. And so we need to look at our relationships and we need to ask ourselves, hey, how have I been doing in the whole area of showing honor? Whether it's in marriage or whether it's to our parents, which the Bible says in Galatians, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 2, honor your father and mother all the days of your life that it might go well with you and you might live long on the earth. The, the Bible says that's the first commandment with a promise. So God is basically saying, if you get that right, I'll increase your length of stay on the earth. The first commandment with a promise. So whatever your allotted time is, God says, I'll give you a bonus if you get that one right. Honoring your father and mother. And that's, that's really tricky sometimes. It's really tricky when you're trying to obey God and your parents don't want you to. Because sometimes Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus told us that. So, but we still have to find a way. Well, even if I'm obeying God, how can I honor? I remember when I left university to go to Bible college, my parents were not happy. Partly because I left nine months before completing my degree. I'm not recommending anybody does that in the womb, okay? Don't do that. Um, but I remember how upset they were. And I said, I just have a conviction that this isn't what I'm meant to do. And so to, in order to honor them, I took, actually took a year sabbatical. In other words, after a year, I could have gone back. Uh, but after a year, I knew I was doing the right thing, and I didn't go back. And so they were, they were disappointed. <laughs> they kind of waited a year in hope that that was disappointed. But I remember the Holy Spirit saying to me, you still need to honor your parents. And I said, how, did I, how do I do that? I've always disappointed them. And I remember the Lord saying to me, well, what you need to do is you need to visit them when it's their birthday and make sure you spend a birthday with them. And make sure you do things that just show you're interested and you care even if they don't. And I remember going to visit my father, and he would sometimes ignore me. He'd go, oh, hi, and then he'd go back to watching Netflix. I'd just driven two hours to see the man, and all I got was a hi. And then I'd talk to my mother, and then I'd say, okay, I'm off now, Dad. Okay, bye. And that was as much as I got with, with him for two years. But there was still a responsibility for me to show honor. And so I didn't mind driving two hours, even though I got a hello and a goodbye. Because I thought, it's not about how he's treating me. It's about how I'm choosing to honor him. Do you get that? And that placed a demand on me. I want to tell you, it placed a demand. And after two years of me being at Bible college, we got married. My father didn't come to my wedding. He made a protest. And I thought, how am I going to handle that? 
you know, there was, there was the opportunity to get resentful or to get bitter or to get, and I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I won't allow myself to do that. I'm just going to keep reaching out to him. Keep reaching out to him. And then we had our first daughter who was born. And I remember ringing him up. I said, Dad, you're a grandparent. Would you like to see your daughter? And I remember there was silence on the other end of the phone. And I could hear my mother screaming in the background, John, tell your son we're coming down. Tell him. You know, in her Italian way, I could hear her hitting me. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that would be a good idea, son, yeah. And, and fortunately, grandchildren have a way of softening people. Yeah? And, you know, my father's journey of coming to faith was a long, long time, but, but there was a responsibility of me to show honor. I had to keep polishing the silver. I had to keep polishing the silver. And so my question to you is, maybe it's with a parent, maybe it's with a colleague at work, maybe it's with your children, maybe it's with your marriage partner, but where do you need to polish the silver? Because the temptation is, if you're not being treated right, the temptation is you just stop polishing. And you know what happens? If this person is tarnished, the relationship is tarnished. And what happens is you don't actually decrease in value, but you don't sense the value in the relationship. So you have to ask yourself, hey, how can I just go further here? You know, one of the things that I love about Clifford's Church is one of our highest values is honor. We honor the word of God. We actually honor biblical truth in our relationships. We, we, we honor one another. We try, to, we try to pull out the best in each other by polishing and saying, wow, didn't he do that? Wow, didn't he do great playing bass? Didn't he do great playing drums? Didn't Ruth do great on keyboards today? Wasn't Avalia's testimony just inspiring? I'm sat there in the front row. I thought, Crikey, she's been so good. I don't think I can preach as well as that right now. Because you're just all responding so well. You know, this is how we polish the silver. It says in the book of Romans, um, in chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, uh, love one another with brotherly love, with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love the way that, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm not talking about being sycophantic. That's a big word, isn't it? Can I teach you my new big word? Sycophantic. That's being brown-nosing. That's where you flatter without real sincerity. I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about honor to whom honor is due. When somebody does something well, you notice it and you show appreciation. When somebody shows you kindness, you say thank you. You go out of your way. And when you're doing that in the relationship, what you're doing is you're polishing the silver. Do you know the word uh, for honor? It's, it's this Hebrew word, kavod, kavod. And it literally means weight or heavy. And in, in the Bible, some things are light, some things are heavy. So, so for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when a prophet comes to uh, the house of Eli, he rebukes Eli. And he says, here's the problem. You've honored your sons more than me. And he says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Notice how the play on words, you don't catch it because of the Hebrew. But those who honor me, those who are heavy, who put weight on my words, will, will have weight in their life. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. They'll have no weight. And so actually, when we are honoring one another, we're actually putting weight behind one another. We're adding weight to a person's words. We're adding weight to the gift in the way we respond. And we need that. Interesting how Paul says in 
uh, when he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, the leaders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So we all deserve honor. Every single person, even your children need to be honored. We need to honor them in a special way. How do we honor kids? We protect them. That's what we do. We protect them. That's a way of honoring children. But leaders, it says here, are worthy of double honor. In other words, put double weight on what they say when they speak into your life because they're in that position because God has entrusted them with a role to care for you and to lead you and to fruitfulness and protection. That's why we give it double weight. Do you get that? Let's look at the next one. I love this, uh, this slide. Oops. Love. That, that is a bouncing ball. You know, if, love, if, if honor is the most connected, neglected, I would say love is the most enduring. It's the most enduring. Love, you can drop love and it'll bounce back. In, in other words, people can do dumb stuff and you keep loving them. Have you noticed that? It's like a rubber ball. It bounces back. And so the Bible calls us to love one another, and, and, and we're told that, that everything needs to be done in love. First Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14. Jesus put it like this in uh, John 15 and verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So, so there's a way of loving that is actually quite shallow. And there's a way of loving that's loving like Jesus that is incredibly deep and it's very self-sacrificing. And so Jesus put it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you simply love those who love you, you're no different from the rest of the world. So he says, I want you to love your enemies. You, you want me to love an enemy? Yeah. Yeah, you've heard it said, you know, love love your friends and hate your enemies. I say unto you, love your enemies. Show kindness to everyone. God makes the sun shine on the just and on the unjust. So the thing, the thing that really distinguishes biblical love from every other kind of love is its lack of agenda, its lack of selfishness. And so my... My question for you is that when your love is not reciprocated, are you still able to bounce back and keep loving? Because the love of God is enduring and it's durable in that way. It just keeps bouncing. Now, now listen, a relationship can be destroyed over time because how many of you know when a ball bounces, it loses energy over time unless you put energy into it. And relationships can be like that if love is not reciprocated over time. In other words, if you're the one constantly showing kindness, you're the one constantly showing patience, you're the one who's constantly making it reciprocal, and that's never reciprocated over time, love can die. And that's true in relationships. So we, you have to put energy into it, but the great thing about love is it's extremely hard to quit. It is durable. It keeps bouncing back. The love of God is like that. But over time, if, if we don't invest into love, it, Jesus said, I want you to love the way I've loved you. Well, how did he love us? Well, he laid down his life for us. He, he made the ultimate sacrifice. 
greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 5, herein is the love of God manifested to us, that Christ died for us while we were still enemies. While we were still enemies. So in other words, human love will, will be self-sacrificing for friendships, for people we value. But God's love goes one step further. Even if people are not responding because of the potential value that they carry, Jesus Christ died on a cross for every single one of us that we could have the possibility of going back into relationship with his Father in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? I, I love the way Ephesians 5 speaks. It's talking about love in the context of marriage. But, but Paul says this, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he takes care of it, he nurtures it. And for me, one of the ways that you can understand when love is really present in a relationship is when there's mercy. When you, when you show genuine care for somebody, when you're concerned about, well, what do they value? What's important to them? How can I, how can I help them and care for them in such a way that they experience what's valuable to me? For me, that is showing love. And it's, it's often self-sacrificing because it usually costs me something. It'll cost me something in time, or it'll cost me something in energy, or it'll cost me something in money. You know, it'll, it'll take all three of those things if you're going to show genuine care. And some people say, yeah, well, I, I love, but I won't go this way. I won't, I won't go beyond this. Yeah, I'll give this, but I won't give that, you know. And usually we put boundaries around it. We put, you know, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying the love of God will always go further. And, and we want to be the people of God who, who live out of the love of God, not out of our fear, not out of our insecurity, not out of our rejection. And, and, and when you allow those things to take root in your life, what happens is you can have one bad relationship and then the impact of that relationship you then carry into the next set of relationships. And that's not healthy. You, you, you have to find healing through the love of God that comes out of that relationship. I don't know about you, but I've had a terrible time with dentists. I don't know what it's—I don't know what it is. It's like if there's a bad dentist in the world, I know how to find them. And it's like I've got this whole—I've got this group of horror stories I can tell you about. Just horror stories. I remember Sam is sitting in the in the audience today, and Sam can tell you the one time I went to a dentist where I spent an hour where he was trying to pull out a molar, and after an hour of doing it, he gave up. He said, I, I can't do it. He said, we'll have to make an appointment at the hospital for you to do that. And I said, well, when's that going to happen? And he said, well, it's at least two weeks. And I said, this anesthetic is going to wear off in about a month. I said, I don't think two weeks is going to do it. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but that's, that's the thing. And poor Sam, I remember ringing Sam up. It was 11.30 at night. I was in so much agony. I said, Sam, I cannot fly. You have to come and get me. And I made an appointment with an emergency dentist. Do you remember this, Sam? And he drove me to this dentist. You forget where it was now. Like, I remember where the tunnel was. I remember where the parking lot was. But, but, but he drove me to this dentist. And this guy looked at me and went, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and, then, and then he told me, I'm going to cost you a lot of money. And I said, I'm in so much pain. I don't care if I have to get a second mortgage right now. Said, just do your stuff now and do your stuff. And uh, oh, you know, I remember taking drugs for about a week. 
you to deal with the pain. But here's my point. How many of you know that experience doesn't endear you next time you go to a dentist? Doesn't endear you. I remember going to a friend of mine in, in New Zealand who is a dentist, you know, and, he, and, and I was telling him all the horror stories. And he goes, oh, he goes, you know, the average dentist, when they graduate, they pull down 12 teeth. He says, when I graduated, I spent my summer holiday in Vietnam dealing with people's teeth. He said, I graduated having pulled out 400. <laughs> he said, you're my man. <laughs> Go to work. Go to work. You pulled out two teeth. It was fantastic. No pain whatsoever. It's like, how many of you know a bad experience puts you off the next experience? A broken heart puts you off going into a new romantic relationship. A father who abuses you or neglects you or dominates you when you're a child. How many of you know you take that into every relationship with a man that you're ever going to have, whether it's your boss or your future husband or your boyfriend or whatever? It colors the way you see life. And you've got to let the love of God go deep into your heart and give you a new image of what the Father in heaven was like. He doesn't abuse his kids. He doesn't dominate us. He doesn't take advantage of us. He doesn't slap us around. That is not what God is like. That's dysfunctional human beings who need to get healed themselves. And we've got to be people who, who, who say, you know what? I'm finding relationships difficult. You know what? Because I've been spiritually broken. I've been through distress. I've been through abuse or whatever it is. And it's not always physical abuse. It's sometimes it's emotional and psychological abuse. But we've got to let the love of God come into our heart because when the love of God comes in, it casts out all fear. It brings healing from the inside out. And it positions you to go into relationships with health, with, with a good expectation, not with fear. Oh, this is another one of those. Let's look at the third one. Huh, trust. The most fragile. Trust is the most fragile. I, I put the China teapot up there. How many of you know you cannot drop a china teapot? You have to treat it with incredible respect. In fact, there's some china teapots you cannot put in the dishwasher. Some that you can now. But if they're very old, you don't put them in the dishwasher. You clean them nicely. Oh, it's just treating the dishwasher. Put them on the side to dry. It's the one time you don't want your kids helping you dry the dishes. Why? Because china teapots, they're, they're precious. They're valuable and they're fragile. Trust is the most fragile thing in any relationship. When trust is gone, when trust is broken, it's very hard to get it back. You see, if you break trust, you can still love somebody, but not trust. <laughs> love will bounce back, but trust will say, no, no, I can't go there. Here's what it's, it says in Proverbs 25, 19. It says, trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slip or a foot that's out of joint. Trusting a precious man is like a bad how many of you know toothache is just painful? And how many of you know some relationships where you trust people, it's like toothache? It just shoots, it just it's right there. It just doesn't go away. It's just this constant bad thing. I think there are two mistakes we've made with the whole issue. We've made a claim and we've made an aim. And I think they're both wrong. The claim is this. There's not much trust in the world. That's the claim. Things are getting worse and worse. There's not much trust. Well, I think it's always been the case in the world. 
And then we make an alliance. And the aim is we have to rebuild trust. We need more trust. And I think for people who have been betrayed, that's a terrible expectation to put on them. What we don't need, we don't need to say to people, you need to trust me. We need to say to people who've broken trust, you need to feed yourself from me. That's far better. There are some people in life you shouldn't trust. And I'm not going to tell you as a pastor, trust them. I think to, to say to a wife whose husband has betrayed her and, and committed adultery, to say to her, you need to trust him again, is, is an unrealistic claim and demand to place on her. He is absolutely not to be trusted. And you're dumb if you do. So what should happen? Well, it, the onus is on him to demonstrate trustworthiness. Because trustworthiness can be tested. Do you get it? That's how we have to live. And so my demand on people is, how are you demonstrating trustworthiness? What, what openness is there in your life to demonstrate that you are faithful, that you're trustworthy? And if we build that kind of trustworthiness, you know what? We can be trusted. Why do you get leaders at the church? Because over time, they've shown themselves faithful and trustworthy. Over time. And when leaders fall, what we need to do is go back to square one and say, okay, you failed, we forgive you, we love you, we start again. Listen, there's a big mistake when leaders fall that we make. And, uh, and I've been doing this for 40 years, so believe me, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. There's a difference between restoring somebody to fellowship with Christ, which can be done in a moment. The moment they repent, the moment they say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I failed. The moment they do that, they're restored to fellowship with God. But then there's the restoration of relationships that have been broken through the failures, whatever that means. That is a process. That takes a little bit longer. But then there's a third restoration that takes place, and that's the restoration to ministry or leadership. And that takes even longer. Why? Because when you fail, you undo what you've built. And so you have to rebuild. How do you rebuild? Well, you start again from the bottom. And you work towards rebuilding credibility, rebuilding faithfulness, rebuilding trustworthiness so that you can be trusted. Do you get that? So my encouragement to you is if you are the guilty party in a relationship that you broke trust, demonstrate trustworthiness. Work on you. Don't say to your partner, well, you just need to trust me again. You know, I said I was sorry. Now you need to trust me again. No, no, no. No, we don't. And no, you shouldn't. That is not a demand you're allowed to make because you're the one who broke trust. You're the one who needs to say to the offended party, what do you need me to do to help you see that I can be trusted? Well, give me the code on your phone. Ooh. There's a level of trust. Let me see your Facebook page. Let me see your bank account. Let me see your credit card bill. And the moment you start saying, no, 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 don't trust me. You don't have to trust me. Because I can be trusted. Trust is fragile. It can be mended, but it takes time. 
with this church in in rebirth. Let's look at the last one. So these 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 are true in every relationship. By the way, let me just say it's never the same proportion in each relationship. In other words, the level of love you show your boss boss is different to the level of love you show your kids. Your boss still deserves to be loved, but in a different way. You understand? And trust is the same. Trust is always different depending on the nature of the relationship. There are different proportions. But here's the last one I want to talk about. Understanding. That's a picture of a 3,000 piece church that celebrates the history of Frisland in the New Testament. Do you know how long it takes to make that culture? (laughs) And understanding in relationships is like a culture. Now, I'm going to speak to all the husbands here today in the room. Husbands, how many of you know that a woman's man can change? It's real. In other words, it takes, listen, I have five daughters and a wife. So six women that are married, significant. And getting to understand every single one of them is significant. And, you know, one of the reasons is this. Women like to talk, and in the talking, they discover things. They discover things about themselves, and they discover things about the person they're looking for. And they're happy to talk and go on the, it's, it's what they call a heuristic thing. You discover things as you talk. In fact, when a woman is upset, she just needs to talk, because when she begins, she doesn't even know why she's upset. But in the talking, she discovers why she's upset, and men are not like that at all. Men sit down and think things through, and they say, yeah, this is the issue. So when they talk, they know what the issue is. A woman's not like that at all. A woman just needs to talk. And for a guy, it's incredibly frustrating because she's talking, and you're thinking, well, what's the issue here? What's the issue? And she goes, oh, I'll come to that. And what she really means, I don't know, but if I keep talking, I know I'll discover it. And what men need to do is to learn how to be patient and let her talk. And what we do is we get frustrated and want her to be like a man. Say, can you get to the point? I'm getting there. You know, and the temperature sort of raises and it's like, oh my goodness. And I don't know why it took me so long to get this. I mean, I'm talking about it took me like 20 years for the penny to drop. It's like, why didn't anyone ever tell me this? Why didn't anyone ever, you know, why didn't my dad sit down and say, you know, when it comes to women, oh, by the way, it's like, why is this secret kept secret? It just helps marriages so much and helps relationships. And and I've discovered, <coughs> well, 1 Peter 3.7 says this, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So, so in relationships, we really need to get what makes one another tick. We need to understand one another, and understanding takes the longest to develop. It's like a 3,000-piece puzzle. You just have to keep working at it, but a beautiful picture emerges in the end. And when you finally get to understand how somebody ticks, it's an incredible place to get to, because it's like, ah, I get you. This is why this is important to you. This is what you're passionate about. You know what? I'm going to allow you, because I understand the way you're wired, this is really important to you. It's so funny, you know. Uh, I remember one of my daughters, I was talking to her one day, and I, you know, I was just frustrated. 
I remember her saying to me, Dad, all I need you to do right now is shut up. Just shut up and nod nod appropriately and listen. And I thought, and it was so hard because as she was talking, I wanted to make intervention. Oh, all you need to do is this. Oh, all you need to do is that. I've got the answer here. It's like she looked at me. It's like, it looks prepared. Oh, my gosh. And I've learned the discipline. Bite your tongue. Just listen, listen, listen. Because here's what I discovered. Many times when we're talking, it's not our words that are communicating, it's what's within the heart. And you have to learn to hear between the lines. And do you know what? As a man, I was always looking for words. I study, I study the book. For me, words are really important. Every word is important. So when someone uses a word, but it's the wrong word or an inappropriate word or not an exact word, I get frustrated. I get frustrated because I'm thinking, but there's a better word than that. And I, th- I want to go into counseling on that. Well, what you should have said is this. But you live in a healthy relationship with me. You know, when a person's upset, yeah, you go into teaching them. They're going to love you for that. Thank you so much for teaching them what I said. Please share the honesty with them. Can't do that. You have to read the situation. You have to be empathetic, and you have to give people perspective of what they're feeling. You've got to read between the lines of what's going on. Something is going on here. And it takes a relationship with God to really discover that. You know, <laughs> there was a woman in the Old Testament, Elisha. She had taken care of Elisha, and so Elisha said, I'm going to do something for you. And she ended up having a son, and he grew up. And then as he grew up, he had a terrible headache one night and died. And this, this woman was running to Elisha, as she's running to, to, to the man of God. It's, uh, it's interesting, everyone kind of stopped and said, how are you doing, is everything all right? She said, yeah, everything's good, everything's good, everything's fine. And then the Gehazi, the servant, goes at Elisha, goes out to meet her and says, is everything good? And she says, yeah, it's fine. And then she finally gets to Elisha and she falls on her face and cries for help. And Gehazi's trying to pull her off. And Elisha makes this statement. He says, leave her alone. She's in great distress. And the Lord has given her to me. Isn't that beautiful? This is a prophet who reads this. Who knows this? And here's this woman. She grabs him. And he says, right now, all I need to do is to eliminate all pain. You know, as Christians, we can be perceptive. We can be prophetic. We can have insight. But sometimes we have no idea what's happening. And we need to be like Elisha. We need to listen. We listen to people's pain. We listen to the gospel. We listen to what God is saying. You know, when people are in pain, they don't always express it in the most obvious ways, do they? This woman said to Elisha, did I ask you for a son? Did I ask you? I took care of you. I gave you. I didn't ask you. And now he's gone. And she's not happy. And he doesn't react to her reaction. It's like Mary and Martha. Jesus is in Jerusalem. My brother is not in Jerusalem. What's your prayer? Jesus doesn't react. Go into prayer. He's anxious about it. He's in pain. 
simple blocks, building blocks to help you in any relationship. Hey, maybe today, just ask the Holy Spirit, which relationship in my life right now do I need to polish and build up? Which relationship in my life right now do I need to show a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more tenderness, a little bit more affection? Which one of my relationships right now do I need to demonstrate myself trustworthy so that trust can be strengthened? Which one of my relationships today do I need to show more patience in order to gain more understanding? Every single one of us has a whole group of people in our world where that kind of demand is happening. And I'm just going to pray for all of you that the grace of God would be on you help you build strong relationships, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in the home, whether it's with friends or whether it's with kids, whether it's with family, whatever it is, Spirit of God, I thank you for your No man is an island. We cannot, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need for you. But you've fashioned us in a body. You've, you've placed us in a context of relationships where we need one another. And through needing one another, we sharpen and we shape one another to be more like you, Jesus. And my prayer is that grace will be on every person in this room. And Lord, the relationships that need to be built or rebuilt, that need to be strengthened, Lord, would you just give grace? Would you give your empowering presence to people in this room? In Jesus' name, we bless you. We thank you. We honor you. Amen. Just want to, I'll do a couple more things and I'll hand back to Mark. So, um, Spirit of God spoke to my heart about you and said, um, you're a man that God has shaped and fashioned to walk with people in a way that brings healing to them. I saw you holding the hand of somebody on your left and somebody on your right, and they're, they're people who didn't want to hold each other's hand, but you held both their hands. I felt like the Spirit of God said to me, this is a man who, who will enable people to reconcile because while they don't trust each other, they trust him. You're a trustworthy individual. And 
God's given you a ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people together. And it's a really, it's a patient ministry. It's a slow ministry, but it's a powerful ministry. And part of the ways you, you're going to do that is God has given you a silver tongue to be able to speak positive things that people don't no longer see if that's an anointing. And, uh, and I feel like, I feel like it, even in your own history, you've seen how people have not said good things about one another. But God's given you a perceptive tongue. He's given you a discerning tongue. And your words are way more powerful than you understand today. They have way more impact than you, you've had. Your, your ministry of, of pulling people together is going to be very transformative for them. So I, I just bless what's on your life. I bless what I see in the spirit. I pray, God, that your, your word says in Proverbs that the, the tongue of the righteous is like apples of gold and kisses of silver. I pray that that, that marks and forces that more and more in the days ahead. And, uh, and for the lady uh, who's behind you, Mark, in the, in the yellow tongue, um, I felt like the Spirit of God said to me, um, I see a history of, of, of betrayal in your past. And what I hear the Spirit of God saying is, you're an overcomer. You're an overcomer. And those, those betrayals, most people would become bitter. But God says, I'm making you better. And part of that ministry that you're going to have in the future is helping people to take steps of forgiveness they never would take because you'll understand their pain. You'll know how to cry with them. You'll know how to embrace them. You'll know how to weep with them. But you'll also know how to direct them to take a step of faith, to take a step of forgiveness. It'll be the beginning of their healing. And part of the thing that God's put on your life is just an ability to encourage people not to live in the pain of their past, but to live in the hope of their future. And that's on your life. You may not feel it to the degree, but I want to tell you, I see it on your life. And you, ha you have a great future. You have a great future. It's not over. It's, it, there's an end of a chapter, but there's a beginning of a new one. And I see that in your life today. And I really bless you. I don't know you, but I just speak the blessing of God over your life. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? Isn't God great?